0: So uh, we, we finished the introduction of individuation in the light of notions of form and information last time. Uh, we, we had a sort of rush, I think, at the, at the end. So maybe it's worth going over that last little bit again, um, just to um, grasp some of the, the key notions. Um, so there was this last bit um, where he, he talks about um, how knowledge of individuation happens um, And um, there's this um, analogical relationship between the individuation of the entity known and individuation in our knowledge. Um, So um, we can only, so uh, he puts it here, we cannot know individuation in the ordinary sense of the term. Um, So that would be something like a a conceptual grasp of uh, of a a process of individuation. Um, Concepts are not adequate to the, a grasp of individuation because concepts only apply to what is already individuated. So we cannot know individuation in, in the ordinary sense of the term. We can only individuate, be individuated and individuate within ourselves. This apprehension is therefore in the margin of knowledge properly speaking, an analogy between two operations, an analogy that is a certain mode of communication. So the the relationship between um, my knowledge and the entity that I, that I know is an analogical relationship um, and uh, this analogy um, is, is sort of the general structure of um, knowledge of individuation in, in Simondon. Um, so there's, there's always this, um, uh, so it's a, it's a, a relationship that um, has to do with the way that my knowledge is individuated within me. Um, so I, my, my knowledge undergoes a process of individuation that corresponds to the, the process of individuation in the entity known. And that's how I, I have this this form of knowledge of uh, of individuation that he also characterizes as intuition uh, elsewhere. Um, so that's um, uh, that's that's a, a key point in his um, his epistemology, his uh, his account of how it is that we know individuation. All right, So uh, with that said, we can uh, move on to the first part and the first chapter of the book. So the the part is. Uh, is called physical individuation. Um, and then we'll have future parts on vital individuation and psychic individuation. Um, but uh, so we're, we're talking about physical individuation here, and the first chapter is called form and matter. Oh, actually, sorry, there's a, there's a question before we, we move on, um, having to do with the, the that last part. Why does he um, bring up that point about communication? Um, so here, communication here is, um, uh, his characterization of the relationship between um between the uh knowledge and the um and the thing known um so it's it's communication in the sense of um the way you can talk about communication of motion for example so it's a, a physical relationship um of one to the other um not in the sense of uh, some a message that would be transmitted for example um but yeah, so it's that, that relationship between the, the entity known and the knowledge of the subject. Uh, and then the, the last statement, you mean the last one on the page there? Um, so when, when he says beings can be known through the knowledge of the subject, but the individuation of beings can only be grasped through, through the individuation of the subject's knowledge. Uh, is that the one that you were referring to there, um, Ion? Right, OK then. Um, yeah, so yeah. So this is uh, uh, sort of a restatement of, of what he had said earlier. Um, uh, a couple lines above um so when, when he, he's using this term knowledge of the subject um he's using knowledge in in a, a narrow sense here so knowledge has to do with conceptual grasp of something so um uh application of a concept to uh, an entity um and knowledge in this sense uh is is always limited to what is individuated already um because concepts only grasp uh what is already individuated and uh so this is knowledge in the in this narrow sense, um, and which which only applies to already individuated entities. Um, and then the individuation, the process of individuation of those entities, is is not uh, graspable by concepts in this sense. It's only by this individuation within knowledge. So undergoing a, a process of individuation within the subject, uh, that's how we we come to have this knowledge in a broader sense of of, uh, uh, of an, a process of individuation. Uh, so there's a, a comment here from Alyosha. Um, as I understand it, in order not to fall into a Hegelian type model, wherein things are known only conceptually, analogy must be employed uh, for Simondon. Uh, however, this analogy shouldn't be platonic. It must be rescued from merely being thought of as comparing things in the mind, instead being seen as, a, as the purely operative nature of things themselves. So by entering into it, you are co-individuating thought and being. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, so the the key notion here is that the relationship between the entity known and my knowledge is itself uh, a transductive relationship or an analogical relationship, uh, understood in that way. So, so it's not it's not purely um, my knowledge of the entity known is not some uh, sort of an external. Um, a uh, relationship that is compared to uh, to the entity known. It's uh, it's uh, an operation. Um, it's the same operation as the operation of the individuation in the entity. So the, this this individuating operation has the sort of these two sides. Um, insofar as it's an individuation in things and an individuation in knowledge. Um, okay, so let's proceed to the uh, the first chapter then. Um, um, right, so the, the first part of the book is called um, the physical individuation. Uh, and uh, we have future parts of the book on vital individuation and psychic individuation, collective individuation. Um, but uh, uh and then within that part, this chapter is on form and matter. Um, so he's he's talking about the hylomorphic schema that, that we uh, saw in the introduction. Um, but he's going to Uh, go into more details um, like a lot of details probably way more than you would ever have thought you would have have about um, making a brick Um, but uh, um, yeah so he's going to start with um, trying to understand the the technical origin of uh, the hylomorphic schema so the the type of technical operation from which the hylomorphic schema is drawn and then he's uh, he's going to um, show how the Hilomorphic schema uh, doesn't fully capture the reality of that uh, technical operation. Um, so it's um, the weakness of so that he wants to he wants to account for both the strength and the weakness of the Hilomorphic schema. So the the capacity that it has to to um, apply to a lot of different domains um, as we find in, in Aristotelian philosophy. And um, then also the weaknesses uh, of, that, um, of that account. Um, so let's, uh, let's start. Um, I, I can start reading, um, just let me scroll down a little bit. Okay, the notions of form and matter cannot help us resolve the problem of individuation unless they are logically first relative to its position. Conversely, if we discovered that the hylomorphic system expresses and contains the problem of individuation, it would be necessary, lest we be forced into begging the question, to consider the search for the principle of individuation as logically anterior to the definition of matter and form. It is difficult to consider the notions of matter and form as innate ideas. However, at the very moment when we would be tempted to assign them a technological origin, we are taken aback by the remarkable capacity for generalization these notions possess. Along with the brick or marble, Clay in the statue aren't the only things that can be thought according to the hylomorphic schema because very many events of formation, genesis, and composition in, a, in the living world and the psychical domain can also be thought in the same manner. The logical force of the schema is so great that Aristotle was able to utilize it in order to sustain a universal system of classification that is applicable to the real, both according to the logical path and according to the physical path, thereby guaranteeing the harmony of the logical order and the physical order in making inductive knowledge possible. Even the rapport of the soul and the body can be thought according to the hylomorphic schema. Um, actually, I'm going to continue in the next couple of short paragraphs as well, and then we'll, then we'll pause. A basis as narrow as that of the technological operation only seems to be able to sustain a paradigm with a similar force of universality with great difficulty. Thus, in order to examine the foundation of the hylomorphic schema, we need to acknowledge the meaning and the extent of the role played in this genesis by the technical experience. The technological nature of the origin of a schema does not invalidate the schema, On, on condition, however, that the operation serving as the basis of formation for the utilized concepts fully passes into and is expressed in the abstract schema without alteration. Conversely, if the abstraction is carried out superficially and unfaithfully by masking one of the fundamental dynamisms of the technical operation, then the schema is false. Instead of having a veritable paradigmatic value, it would be nothing but a comparison, a more or less rigorous approximation according to the case. Uh, so here, so he's saying out the problem that uh, he's going to start with. Um, so the problem is um, we have this hylomorphic schema um, that we we have seen in the introduction um, is um, to be criticized in terms of how it accounts for individuation. So it, it has this... Um, um, sort of um, begging the question structure insofar as the uh, the principles that are supposed to account for individuation themselves have uh, the, the status of individuals. So um, what is supposed to explain individuation is instead um, already presupposing something individuated. Um, so we have this problematic status of the hylomorphic schema, but then at the same time, we also have, um, we also have this uh, um, generalizability of the hylomorphic schema. So the fact that it can apply to so many different domains as we see in, in Aristotle, um, we, can, um, we can account for um, uh, technical productions like a brick or uh, a statue made out of clay or, um, or marble, for example. Um, and then also in uh, Aristotelian philosophy, we can account for living beings um, and their growth and development and so on. Um, and uh, um, we can account for that in terms of matter and form. And even, uh, as he points out, even the relationship between body and soul um, is is uh, understood in hylomorphic terms in Aristotle's philosophy. Um, so we have this notion that has this wide applicability um, but we also understand it uh, to be um, uh, inadequate in some ways. So we need to have something that accounts for both aspects of this principle. So the fact that it's generalizable and the fact that it's not, not adequate to account for individuation. And so the, um, the, the procedure that Simon is going to follow is to um, derive the hylomorphic schema from a, a technical basis, uh, from uh, uh, it's basis in a technological operation. Um, but then he, so he he wants to start by, um, or he, he starts here uh, right at the bottom of page 21 with um, uh, considering a, a sort of objection um, that you could raise to this procedure. So um, the hylomorphic schema because of its generality it seems to be something much broader than, um, than something that would be just uh, sort of Copied from a, a technological operation, um, it seems to be have this sort of universal, universal um, quality to it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Simondon uh, says that it's it's difficult to um, to uh, regard this form matter distinction or or the concepts of form and matter as universal uh, as um, innate concepts because. Uh, um sorry, I'm just trying to find the, the passage in the French here. Um, right So it's it's uh, difficult to see it um, uh, as a purely technical operation, as, as sort of copied from a purely technical operation. Um, but then at the same time it's uh, um, it's seeing it as an innate um, idea, uh, doesn't really account for the, the origin of, of this notion either. So either way, you're, you're sort of stuck. Um, but he wants to um, develop the, the example of, of the technical operation in more detail rather than just seeing it as like um, uh, a sort of abstract copy. But he wants to go into the details of this technical operation uh, in order to understand to what extent this notion is, uh, or this pair of notions form and matter is, uh, is adequate. Right, and then so uh, as uh, Alyosha mentioned in, in a chat here, so he's he's um, he's when he presents this sort of um, genealogy or or genesis of uh, the the notion of hylom- of uh, the hylomorphic schema, uh, the notion of matter and form, um, he he does this. Um, so he he specifies at the beginning that this um, genesis doesn't invalidate the schema. Uh, so it's not it's not that. Um, drawing a schema from a technical operation uh, is an invalid procedure of thought, um, or that the, 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 the schema itself would be invalid just because it has its origin in a technological operation. But the, the question is whether, um, whether this operation uh, is adequately grasped by the schema, uh, or if the schema, um, uh, on the other hand, uh, inadequately grasp the operation. Uh, and so he's going to argue, uh, in the case of the hylomorphic schema, that uh, it's it's the latter case, so it doesn't adequately grasp the technical operation that it's um, that it's uh, drawn from. So there's a it's a, a superficial um, uh, superficial and unfaithful uh, representation of uh of the technical operation uh because it so it's, it's not just that it doesn't include some aspects of the of the technical operation but it uh it masks the uh one as he says one of the fundamental dynamisms so the the te- technical operation is not comprehensible um in terms of the schema because it it uh it m- makes uh one uh part of that fundamental dynamism or or the the basic operation of that technical procedure um, incomprehensible, uh, and so we'll see in more detail as he goes through the the hylomorphic um, um, the hylomorphic schema. Um, he's going to uh, explain in what sense that's inadequate to uh, um, the grasp of. Uh, uh, a form-taking operation, uh, and yeah. So the question um, in the chat is: uh, d- Is there example? Is there an example of a technical operation that does pass this test of abstraction? So uh, uh, a schema that would um, um, adequately represent um, a technical operation. Um, I'm not sure if there is um, a, a particular instance of that in this book. Um, because he, he only really deals with uh, technical operations in this first chapter uh, on form and matter and the relationship with the hylomorphic schema. Um, but um, I would say the other, his other main book on the mode of existence of technical objects, um, that's uh, sort of the, the general goal of the book is to present um, adequate uh, schemas for um, various technical objects. Um, and so he he analyzes different examples of, uh, car engines and, um, uh, transistor or, um, uh, vacuum tubes, um, in, in great detail, um, you know, the, the evolution of vacuum tubes and so on. Um, and, uh, um, a turbine, uh, and, and other examples like that. And he, he wants to give, um, the technical schema of their operation um, in a way that is adequate to the, the that technical operation um, and doesn't um, doesn't leave out or mask any elements of its uh, of its operation. Yeah, there's. Um, I'm not sure if there are any um, other philosophers that he would say have um, have done this in an adequate way um, that have taken. Uh, a technical operation and derived a schema from it in an adequate way. But he he um, he uh, points to um, ancient philosophy as borrowing um, examples from the the technology of the time, um, so um, agricultural metaphors or 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 whatever um, the um, adopting um, and even the hylomorphic schema would be an instance of this. Um, but um, um, I think that that text uh, that you mentioned on the history of, uh, of the notion of individuation uh, would be the place to look for um, those uh, schemas uh, drawn from technical concepts uh, or from technical operations, sorry, um, and to see whether there is a, a good example in, in that text of, uh, of what he's doing here uh, or what he's criticizing here. OK, um, I think we can go on to the next paragraph, uh, which is a bit of a long one, if someone would like to read that, that long paragraph. However,
1: in the technical operation that gives rise to an object with form and matter like a brick of clay, the real dynamism of the operation is quite far from being able to be represented by the f- matter-form pair. The form and the matter of the hylomorphic schema are an abstract form and an abstract matter. The definite being that can be shown, this brick drying on this board, does not result from the combination of an unspecified matter and an unspecified form. If we take fine grained sand, moisten it, and pack uh, pack it into a brick mold, then we will get a heap of sand and not a brick after we take it out of the mold. If we take clay and put it through the rolling mill or spinneret, then we will not get a plate or wire, but a pile of broken layers and short cylindrical segments. Clay conceived as the support of an undefined plasticity is the abstract matter. The right-angled parallelepiped conceived as brick form is an abstract form. The concrete brick does not result from the joining of the clay's plasticity and the parallelepiped. In order for there to be a parallelepipedic brick, a really existing individual, An effective technical operation operation must institute a mediation between a determinate mass of clay and this notion of the parallel epiped. However, the technical operation of molding is not enough by itself. Moreover, this operation does not institute a direct mediation between a determinate mass of clay and the abstract form of the parallel epiped. The mediation is prepared by two chains of preliminary operations that make a matter and form converge toward a common operation. To give a form to the clay is not to impose the parallel form onto raw clay. It is to pack the prepared clay into a fabricated mold. If we start from the two ends of the technical chain, the parallel epiped in the clay in the quarry, then we can experience the impression of realizing in the technical operation, an encounter between two realities of heterogeneous domains, and of instituting a mediation through communication between an interelementary macrophysical order larger than the individual and an intraelementary microphysical order smaller than the individual.
0: right, so here he's um, uh, introducing what his criticism is of the hylomorphic schema um, that he'll develop in, in further detail. Um, but the, the basic idea we can already see from this paragraph is that uh, it, the, the hylomorphic schema, um, it, deals only, it, it deals with abstractions uh, in the sense that we start from an abstract form, uh, this rectangular um, um, parallelepiped, whatever um, that is. Um, um, but he, uh, we start from this rectangular uh, form, and then we uh, apply it to this um, sort of uh, abstract plasticity of the clay and then we suppose that the the brick will will result from that but the real brick the real individual um, is um, is not the result of um, an abstract form imposed on uh, abstract matter. It's the result of a, a concrete form uh, in the, the the form of the mold. Uh, it, this concrete object, the mold, uh, interacting with the uh, concrete clay that's been prepared to uh, to um, to to take on the mold. Um, so. Um, we have in the technical operation these two half chains, as he puts it, that are joined together in some way. But um, there's uh, um, if we just start from the two ends of the chain, then we we are are sort of um, left uh, it's left obscure how that uh, linking in the middle happens, um, and we'll see in more detail what that means in the next few paragraphs. Sorry,
1: uh, I I'm confused as to what do inter-elementary, the macro and the intra elementary micro mean in this instance, in the case of uh, the clay
2: mold,
0: the clay and the frame mold? Right. Um, there is a, um, I think we're going to see in more detail as we go along um, what this means exactly. But um, the idea is that um, the, the uh, The mould is um, uh, outside of the the individual, Um, so um, it's it's at a greater scale of uh, of magnitude than the individual um, that is going to result from the operation. Whereas the the clay, um, um, we're dealing in the case of the clay, we're dealing with the molecular properties of of the clay. and uh, the, so the interaction um, at a much lower scale um, of, of magnitude um, or order of magnitude uh, compared to the individual that will result. So there, there's an interaction that happens between the, the geometrical form of the clay, which is um, um, uh, larger in scale than, uh, than the individual that will result, and then the uh the properties of the clay that, um, that will um, uh, uh, be lower in scale or, or a, a smaller scale than the individual that will result.
1: Thanks for that. I, I was uh, keeping thinking toward the, the wall uh, in which the uh, brick would be placed, but I guess the, even the frame itself is uh, enough of a
0: uh, larger frame, uh, a larger scale than uh, the brick. Right. Yeah. So the 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 uh, the mold uh, in which the the brick is formed um, uh, is a is a, a larger scale than um, than the brick itself. Um, or there's going to be a, an interaction between the scale of the uh, or you could you could put it this way is that the the brick mediates between the um, between the the order of magnitude of the the mold and the uh, order of magnitude of uh, the uh, uh, colloidal structure of the clay, as we'll see in, in the next little bit. So, so the, the individual that results is a, a mediation between those two orders of magnitude. Okay. Um, we can go on to the next paragraph, which is also pretty long. But uh, if someone else would like to read that, we can continue. Yeah, I was just looking ahead. Uh, yeah, it is like a, a multi-page paragraph um, which uh, is is uh, something Simondon loves to do to us. Um, so maybe let's read like um, one page at a time of this multi-page paragraph. In the technical operation,
2: to be considered precisely the mediation itself. In the chosen case, it consists in making a prepared block of clay completely fill a mold and drying it afterwards by conserving this defined contour without cracks or disintegration. However, the preparation of the clay and the construction of the mold are already an active mediation between the raw clay and the geometrical form that can be imposed. The mold is constructed so that it can be opened and closed without damaging its contents. Certain forms of geometrically conceivable solids have only become realizable with very complex and subtle devices. Even today the art of constructing molds is one of the most delicate aspects of the foundry. Furthermore, the mold isn't just constructed, it is also prepared. A certain coating or a dry powdering will prevent the humid clay from sticking to the walls of the mold when it is removed, thus keeping it from forming cracks or disaggregating. In order to produce a form, one must construct a certain defined mold prepared in a certain fashion with a certain type of matter. Thus, there is an initial pathway that goes from the geometrical form to the concrete material mold parallel to the clay, which exists in the same manner as it it, and is posited alongside it, in the order of magnitude of the manipulable. As for the clay, it is also submitted to a preparation. As a raw matter, it is what the shovel raises to the surface at the edge of the marsh with with roots of rush and gravel grains. Dried, crushed, sifted, wetted, shaped, and kneaded at length, it becomes this consistent and homogeneous dough that is plastic enough to be able to embrace the contours of the mold in which it is pressed and firm enough to conserve this contour long enough for this plasticity to disappear. In addition to its purification, the preparation of the clay seeks to obtain homogeneity and the best degree of chosen humidity to reconcile plasticity and consistency. In the raw clay, there is the capacity to become a malleable mass with the dimension of the future brick due to the colloidal properties of aluminum hydrosilicates. These colloidal properties make it possible for the movements of the technical half chain ending in the prepared clay to be effective. The molecular reality of the clay and of the water that it absorbs is organized by the preparation in such a way as to be able to behave during individuation as a homogeneous totality on the level of the brick that is about to appear. Prepared clay is a clay in which each molecule, despite its place relative to the walls of the mold, will be effectively put into communication with all the pressures exerted by these walls. Each molecule intervenes on the level of the future individual and thereby enters into interactive communication with the order of magnitude superior to the individual."
0: So he's going into the the details here of this operation, but he's continuing with the point from the previous paragraph that it's not just um, uh, a geometrical form and an abstract matter that are applied to each other. Um, You need to actually, um, you need to uh, process the the clay to make it have the properties required in order to take on a form and likewise you need to prepare the mold uh in a certain way in order for uh in order for it to be able to impose a form onto uh the brick um so it's it's not just um the this sort of mysterious coming into contact of uh of a geometrical form and an abstract matter that um that accounts for um uh, the individuation of this brick—it's um, this half chain, these two half chains—that might begin from the abstract matter and the abstract form, um, but that they proceed—they um, the, the two chain half chains connected to each other um, by um, uh, by this mediation process, right? And then the the passage that um, Alyosha posted in the chat there, um, so. Um, the clay has to be processed in a certain way. It has to be um, uh, filtered and, and kneaded and, and uh, have, have the right degree of humidity and so on um, in order for it to um, be able to transmit the force applied by the walls of the mold in uh, a un- uniform manner uh, across the whole brick um, so that the brick has a, a, an even consistency and uh, doesn't form cracks and so on. All right, let's uh, continue to the next page uh, of this multi-page paragraph.
3: On its side, the other technical half chain descends towards the future individual. The parallelopipedic form is not just any form, it already contains a certain schematism that can direct the construction of the mold, which is a set of coherent operations contained in the implicit state. The clay is not just passively deformable, it's actively plastic because it's colloidal. Its capacity to receive a form is not distinct from its capacity to keep it because keeping and receiving amounts to the same thing to undergo a flawless deformation with a coherence of molecular chains. The preparation of the clay is the constitution of this state of equal is the constitution of this state of equal distribution of molecules and this arrangement into chains. The shaping has already begun the moment when the craftsman stirs the paste before introducing it into the mold. This is because the mold is not just the fact of being parallelepipedic, it is also the fact of being flawless to the parallelepiped, without bubbles of air and without cracks. Unblemished cohesion is the result of a formation, and this formation is merely the exploitation of the colloidal characteristics of the clay. Before any elaboration, the clay in the marsh is already in a form, since it is already colloidal. The the craftsman's labor uses this elementary form, without which nothing would be possible, and which is homogeneous relative to the form of the mold. There is merely a change of scale in the two technical half-chains. In the marsh, the clay indeed has colloidal properties, but these properties exist molecule by molecule or grain by grain in this state. This already involves form and is what will later maintain the homogeneous and well-molded brick. The quality of matter is the form's source, an element of the form whose scale is modified by the technical operation. In the other technical half chain, the geometrical form becomes concretized and becomes the dimension of the mold, e.g. collected wood, sawdust, or damp wood. The technical operation prepares two half chains of transformation that encounter one another at a certain point when the two elaborated objects have compatible characteristics and are on the same scale. This putting into relation is not singular and unconditional. It can take place in stages. What we consider to be a single instance of shaping is often just the latest episode in a series of transformations. When the block of clay receives the final deformation that allows it to fill the mold, its molecules are not reorganized completely and in a single stroke. They are displaced slightly relative to one another. Their topology is maintained and what is involved is merely one last total deformation. However, this total deformation is not just a shaping of the clay by its contour.
0: Right. Um, so again, we're just continuing with the same uh, uh, point about the um, uh, structuring of the two elements in the hylomorphic schema. Um, but here he's, he's also, um, he's pointing to the um, extension through time of, of this structuring. So the the clay is already beginning it already has uh, a form when it's just clay in a in a marsh or or wherever um uh and then uh as soon as you begin to to um stir it or or start working with it, it you're already applying a form to it um and then likewise the uh the uh um the mold is um uh um, applying is working on the clay uh, through time. It's not just um, some sort of instantaneous process of uh, application of the form onto the, the clay. There is um, a transmission of force that takes time um, across uh, uh, the, the whole, um, the whole uh, block of clay or, or, or mass of clay that is going to become the brick. Um, yeah, and then there's also that footnote um, that Alyosha posted in the chat. Um, um, so it's um, again, pointing to the, um, the relationship between the inter-elementary and the intra-elementary um, relations that, that takes place in, the, um, in the, the formation of the brick. So the, the mediation between these two orders of magnitude. All right, let's uh, continue to the next um, page of this paragraph. Um, I suppose I can read. The clay yields a brick because this deformation operates on masses whose molecules are already arranged relative to one another, without air, without grains of sand and and with a good colloidal equilibrium. If the mold didn't guide all of this already constituted prior arrangement into one last deformation, then it would never produce any form. It could be said that the form of the mold only operates on the form of the clay and not on the clay matter. The mold limits and stabilizes rather than imposing a form. It provides the goal of deformation and achieves it by interrupting it according to a definite contour. It modulates the ensemble of the already formed sections. The action of the worker who fills the mold and packs the clay continues the prior action of kneading, stretching and shaping. The mold plays the role of a fixed set of modeling hands acting like halted kneading hands. We can make a brick with our hands without a mould by prolonging the kneading through a fashioning that would continue it without interruption. Matter is matter because it contains a positive property that allows it to be modelled. To be modelled is not to undergo arbitrary displacements but to organise matter's plasticity according to definite forces that stabilise the deformation. The technical operation is a mediation between an inter-elementary ensemble and an intra-elementary ensemble. The pure form already contains actions and the raw material is the capacity of becoming. The actions contained in the form encounter the becoming of the matter and modulate it. In order for the matter to be able to be modulated in its becoming, it must, like the clay at the moment when the worker packs it into the mould, have a deformable reality, i.e. a reality that does not have a definite form, but all forms indefinitely and dynamically. Since this reality, while it possesses inertia and consistency, is a depository of force, at least for an instant, and is identical point by point with this force. In order for the clay to fill the mould, it is not enough for it to have plasticity. It must transmit the pressure that the worker impresses on it, and each point of its mass must be a centre of forces. The clay is pushed into the mould that it fills. It propagates the energy of the worker within its mass. While the mould is being filled, the potential energy becomes actualized. The energy that pushes the clay must exist potentially in the mould-hand-clay system for the clay to fill all the empty space, and this energy develops in every direction and is halted only by the boundaries of the mould. The walls of the mould then intervene not on the whole as materialised geometrical structures, but point by point as fixed places that do not allow the expanding clay to advance and oppose against the pressure developed by the clay, an equal force in the opposite direction, principle of reaction, without carrying out any work, since they are not displaced. The walls of the mould relative to an element of the clay play the same role as an element of this clay relative to another nearby element. The pressure of one element relative to another within the mass is almost as strong as that of an element of the wall relative to an element of the mass. The only difference is that the wall is not displaced, whereas the elements of the clay can be displaced relative to the others and relative to the walls. And uh, thanks Alyosha for posting the uh, footnotes. You can be our our designated footnote poster. Uh, So there's this notion that's uh, sort of introduced in passing here uh, of modulation, which we'll see in more detail. um in the next bit uh in the next uh, section of this chapter um when we get to it um but um the um, um modulation and molding are are two sort of alternate forms of the same type of process um so molding is um uh a uh, forming of uh of matter in in a a sort of permanent form uh, or a, a continuous form that will persist after the, the molding operation, whereas modulation is um, a, a continuous um, um, modification of this forming of, a, of a, a flow of matter or a stream of matter. But we'll, we'll see that in more detail in the next section, um, but I just wanted to point that out uh, that that's going to return um, as we continue.
2: So can I ask about this sentence here? the one I pasted in chat where he says, in order for matter to be able to be modulated in its becoming, it must, like the clay at the moment from the worker packs it into the mold, have a deformable reality, i.e. a reality that does not have a definite form, but all forms indefinitely and dynamically. Since this reality, while it possesses a certain inertia and consistency, is a depository of force, at least for an instant, and is identical point by point with this force. I guess, so I'm in the first half, I'm kind of following, um, so th- there's a point in which he's saying it's th- the ability for the matter, like the clay, to take on all these different forms. Like we we're saying, it's an active sort of uh, <laughs> feature. It's a potentiality of the clay itself. So it, it is, it's a ability to take on all these forms indefinitely and dynamically. That kind of makes sense to me. But then I'm not sure in the second half where they're saying, since this reality possessing inertia and consistency is a depository of force uh identical point by point yeah I'm, I'm not following there would you be able to help with that?
0: um as far as i understand it what he's getting at there is um the way that the the clay has to transmit force across uh the whole mass of clay in order to um uh form a, a brick with a um a homogeneous structure uh and so a brick without cracks or or uh, flaws or or whatever um so, in order for this uh, form-taking operation to actually occur in the proper manner, it has to um, it has to um, transmit force across itself in, in this uh, um, in this way of of uh, sort of uh, in all directions um, uh, equal transmission of force. Um, so there's no um, there's no difference uh, between one uh, m- molecule in the clay that is uh, next to the wall and another molecule that is in, in the middle of the mass of clay because the force um, of the walls is transmitted through uh, the whole mass of clay um, and uh, and they all act in the same manner. Uh, that's how I understand that, that passage.
2: I think I also might have answered my question. That That's helpful, but also he says I wasn't understanding the grammar here. Cause he's saying since this reality duh, 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 is identical point by point with his force. So I, I, I understand it in light of what you're saying now, he's saying that that reality of what the mole uh sorry, what the the clay or the matter is, there's, there's no distinction. Like as though there's a, that force is something that happens to the matter or, or separate from it, but it is the ability for it to have all those points of force and acting on it simultaneously.
0: Right, so what constitutes the matter as this particular form of matter, uh, um, as, you know, as having the property of plasticity, is the fact that it can transmit force across itself, across the mass of, of matter in, uh, in this uniform way. Um, so it, it's it, the property of the matter is just its capacity to transmit force in this uniform way. Okay, um, so would someone else like to read the next page, uh, starting from a potential energy? <clears throat> A
1: potential energy that is translated within the clay by, forces, by the forces of pressure is actualized while the mold is being filled. The matter conve- conveys with it the potential energy being actualized. The form, which is here represented by the mold, plays an informing role by exerting forces without work. Forces that limit the actualization of the potential energy momentarily borne by the matter. This energy can be actualized in a given direction with a given rapidity. The form is the limit. The relation between matter and form thus does not take place between inert matter and a form coming from outside. There is a common operation that is on the same level of existence between matter and form. This common level of existence is that of force, which arises from an energy momentarily borne by the matter yet drawn from a state of the total higher dimension inner el- elementary system with the superior dimension that expresses the individuating limitations. The technical operation constitutes two half-chains that verge, starting from the raw matter and the pure form, toward one another and combine. This combination is made possible by the dimensional correspondence of the two ends of the chain. The successive lengths of the elaboration transfer characteristics without creating new ones. They merely establish changes in orders of magnitude, changes in level, and changes in state. For example, the passage from the molecular state to the molar state, from the dry state to the humid state. What is present at the material end of the half chain is the capacity for matter to convey a potential energy point by point, which can provoke a movement in an undetermined direction. What is present at the end of the formal half chain is the capacity for a structure to condition a movement without carrying out work through a play of forces that do not displace their point of application. This affirmation, however, is not rigorously true. In order for the mold to be able to limit the expansion of the modeling clay and statically direct this expansion, the walls of the mold must develop a force of reaction equal to the pressure of the clay. The clay recedes and becomes tightly packed, thereby filling out the empty space when the reaction of the walls of the mold is slightly more elevated than the forces exerted in the opposite directions within the mass of the clay. Conversely, when the mold is completely filled, the internal pressures are equal throughout to the wall's forces of reaction so that there is no longer any movement taking place. The reaction of the walls is thus the static force that directs the clay during the filling of the mold by preventing expansion in in certain directions.
4: I have a question.
1: Um, Is this
4: where he uh, mentions, there's some point, I'm wondering whether it's in this passage where he mentions that there's a potentiality that's intrinsic to the system. It's like a third potentiality working on the, uh, the equilibrium?
0: Um, yeah, not sure what, uh, what passage you're, you're referring to there. Um, do you, can you uh, see if you can find the, the passage in the, in the text? Okay, it may be coming
4: up. I, I just know that uh, in what was just read, there was um, a lot of mention of the uh, potential energy so I can't remember where I read it just yet, but uh, there's one passage. Let me see if I can locate it.
0: Um, so yeah, there was a Alyosha um, put it in the chat here about this this term uh, forces without work. Um, so I'm just trying to bring up the uh, the uh, sort of official definition here. But work in in physics has to do with um, uh, bringing about a change of state of some kind, whether it's um, a, a displacement or a change in temperature or or something like that. Um, and in the case of the, the mold, um, there's no work in the sense that there's no displacement. Um, the the form um, doesn't uh, doesn't actively push uh, on the mold doesn't actively push into the uh, into the clay. Um, there's no um, there's no um, uh, change of state in that sense Um, although he's going to qualify that in uh, the next we just saw the just at the end of the passage that um, that uh, that we just read and and into the the next bit of that paragraph so he's going to mention that the uh, in in the um, uh, operation of the molds. There is actually um, flexion of the walls of the molds, uh, so that they 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 uh, bend and, and then push back uh, onto the clay. So there is uh, there is actually work in that sense, um, but um, that's a, a sort of secondary um, uh, operation. And um, but that's part of the functioning of the molds is is to uh, carry out work. Um, and so work, uh, here's the definition. Uh, work is the energy transferred to or from an object via the application of force along a displacement. Uh, so it's the product of force and displacement. Um, and so that displacement uh, element is, is the aspect that he uh, he's um, uh, concerned with here. So the, the these forces without work would be forces that, that don't bring about a, a displacement. Um, and uh, um, so at, at one level of analysis, the, the operation of the form is, uh, is uh, a operation of forces without work. Uh, the operation of the mold, sorry, I should say. Um, and uh, uh, it's only at a, a, a further level of analysis that you um, uh, look at the actual flexion of the walls of the mold that, uh, that does uh, carry out work.
2: So can I ask, I, I really like this section in the middle near the top here where he describes, he says the common level of existence um, between matter and form is that of force. So is it that what, what is a sort of like his way of answering the hylomorphic schema is saying, because if you would, if, if you just stick to saying, okay, this operates on this sort of order of magnitude and this operates on this order of magnitude, you're still going to kind of endlessly be stuck in, you know, at, at what point does... Does change happen, and how how does it operate on these two separate things? But he's sort of saying, like, because um, I think there was an earlier quote, uh, if I can find this. Um, well, anyway, I'll, I'll try and look for it. But where he where he's saying that there's a point at which the matter uh, and the form taking, I guess, are operating. Again, he I think he uses the same word actually, the, the same. Level. Um, I'm just trying to work it out in my head. So if if form is being redefined as a kind of limit. A limiting force, rather than uh, a shape that something takes, and matter is being redefined as, you know, another a molecular distribution of force. Is that that's the idea? Is that the thing that translates between those two chains? I suppose is is force itself. Like, am, am I just m- making up words here? <laughs> Does that make sense?
0: No, I think I, I think I get what you're saying. I think that's um, um, generally. Right, um, so the this notion of force is what mediates between the order of magnitude of the mold and the order of magnitude of the, the clay, the, the uh, sub uh, or the molecular level of, uh, of uh, the, the structure of the clay. Um, and so it's because um, because the clay can transmit force in a certain way and, and uh, across itself and it's, and because the mold can exert force in this way um, that they uh, um, that they can interact with each other at the level of force, um, so they they force is what mediates between these two orders of magnitude, um, and so it's it's um, uh, it's this uh, common level of existence, as he puts it, uh, is is force um, uh, in this sense. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Alyosha, your your last comment there, I think that's right. Um, they. Um, is this force without work at a, a certain um, uh, level of approximation or, or at a first level of approximation. Uh, and then um, uh, as he further um, uh, expands on, on the example, there is flexion of the walls. Um, um, so there is work. Um, but uh, in, in either case, it's, um, it's through this application of force um that uh, the the form and matter come to um, meet each other. On to the next um, uh, the next uh, page I guess of this uh, continuing paragraph.
3: However, the forces of reaction can only exist due to a very slight elastic flexing of the walls. From the matter's point of view, It could be said that the formal wall is the limit beginning from which a displacement in a determined direction is only possible at the expense of a very large increase in work. But in order for this condition of increased work to be effective, it must begin to be realized before the equilibrium is disrupted and before the matter takes on other directions in which it is not limited, since the matter is pushed by the energy that it carries with it and that it actualizes by advancing. Thus, there must be a little work from the walls of the mold that corresponds to the slight displacement of the point of impact of the forces of reaction. But this work is not added to the work that produces the actualization of the energy borne by the clay. It is no longer involved in the work of actualization. It does not interfere with the latter. We can also reduce it as much as we like. A thin wooden mold noticeably becomes deformed under the abrupt pressure of the clay and then progressively returns to its original position. A thick wooden mold displaces less. A cast iron or flint mold hardly displaces at all. Furthermore, the the positive work of the mold returning to its original position largely compensates for the negative work of deformation. The mold can have a certain elasticity. It simply must not have plasticity. Matter and form are brought together as forces. The only difference between the regime of these forces for matter and form is the fact that the forces of the matter come from an energy born by the matter that is readily available, whereas the forces of the form are forces that produce nothing but a small amount of work and intervene as limits of the actualization of the matter's energy. It is not in the infinitely short instant that matter and form are different, but in becoming. The form is not the bearer of potential energy, The matter is only informable matter because it can, point by point, be the bearer of an energy that becomes actualized. The preliminary treatment of the raw matter aims to make the matter the homogeneous support of a definite potential energy. Through this potential energy the matter becomes. The form, however, does not become. In the instantaneous operation, the forces of the matter and the forces that arise from the form are not different. They are homogeneous relative to one another and belong to the same instantaneous physical system, but they do not belong to the same temporal ensemble. The work exerted by the forces of the elastic deformation of the mold no longer exists after the molding. They are nullified or degrade into heat and have not produced anything on the order of magnitude of the mold. Conversely, the potential energy of the matter is actualized on the order of magnitude of the clay mass by producing a distribution of the elementary masses.
0: So here he's explaining, um, so given that um, form and matter both have this, uh, they, they coincide in this quality of being forces or this uh, property of, of being forces, um, he, he wants to explain what the difference is between them, um, what, where the difference resides. Um, and uh, so his, his explanation is that they have a different uh, temporal structure, we could say, um, in the sense that the uh, the matter um, uh, takes on the form uh, uh, in this process of, of forming, um, it's so it's it's uh, molded and then um, retains form, whereas the uh, the the mold itself um, uh, undergoes uh, a flexion. Um, and uh, uh, regains its original form uh, without um, retaining the, the, the flexion. So it's um, uh, only the the matter undergoes transformation or a, a change of, of form through the process of, of form taking, whereas the the form it, the mold itself um, doesn't change form. So that's the the difference of the two in terms of their temporal structure. Um, yeah, so that, that passage on singularity, um, I can't find it quickly. Um, where is that? Let me see if I can find it. All right, Okay, I see it now. It's in the it's in the footnote. Um, yeah. So, um, so in this case, um, uh, the singularity, as uh, so as he, he uh, points out in, in that footnote, in this case, the singularity is the the mold, Um which mediates uh, or which brings about the mediation between the different orders of magnitude Uh, but then he says in in, uh, natural phenomena the singularity can be uh, for example the stone that around which a dune accretes through sand um, sand that uh, um, accumulates around the the stone um, or it can be um, uh, the bit of gravel that um, is the the seed of an island, uh, as he puts it, or the the, the island um, is built up around uh, uh, by by the silts that is uh, um, accumulated around this bit of gravel. Um, so it's uh, this uh, singularity is is always um, is always what um, uh, brings about the mediation between these two orders of magnitude uh, that. Uh, causes the, the structure, um, and then I think, yeah, so I think in the case of the, the crystal example, uh, I think the, the, the germ crystal would be um, um, uh, a singularity uh, as well.
2: So, so would you say, is it correct to kind of frame it as, in addition to what we were saying before about limiting force, that that's the additive? aspect where he's saying the form does not add work to the matters the way that the matter realizes that work through uh, the, the energy being born out of it. So would that mean then that rather than, um, I guess, like you said earlier, so matter has this form taking potential, which means form is a kind of opposing force to the original force or to, you know, the, these are, it has to be two opposing forces because otherwise they become a synthesis. Which is which leads into the kind of hylomorphic thing, right?
0: um yeah, so I think the so the reason why we we have these opposing forces is just due to the the nature of force. Um, you know the Newton's first law that every action uh, I think it's the first law. Uh, someone can correct me on that, but uh, every action has uh, uh, an equal and opposite reaction. Um, so the force that's exerted by the the clay onto the onto the mold is. Uh, um, receives the reaction through the, the flexion of the moulds and then it's, it's returned to its original form. Um, so it's, uh, um, we have these opposing forces just through action and reaction. Um, and uh, um, it's through the, the interaction of these two forces that we get this mediation, um, uh, so it's not, um, it's not a, a synthesis in that sense um, because it's not uh, it's not um, uh, it's not sort of um, retaining and and uh, at a higher level in the way that a, um, a Hegelian um, uh, dialectical process does um, it's uh, it's just a, an interaction at an immediate uh, level of existence and um, um, or immediate order of magnitude um, between uh, between these two uh, extreme orders of
2: magnitude. A- anti-production suddenly makes so much more sense to me. <laughs> yeah, Angus, because I feel like we've always struggled. this. Well, I haven't been to those sessions in a while, but at least when I was attending that, that kind of idea of what, what does it mean to anti-produce something and how could it create help create a surface and the BWO and Wow, well, there's two separate forces. Why are they related to each other? And there's all these questions, but this seems to so clearly, you know, lay out this idea of like the, like the exactly what we were saying, of the, the limiting sort of uh, force being something that still, it reacts to this other force, but, um, you know, and it helps, as we're seeing here, it helps the, it helps the form taking, but it isn't, it isn't the form taking itself like that responsibility, if you want to call it, that seems to be taken on by matter in this framework.
0: Right, and that bit that you pointed out in the chat as well about the uh, the way that the work is not added, uh, so the work um, of, of the displacement of the molds um, is not added to the work that produces the actualization of the energy borne by the clay. Um, so uh, as he points out in, in the next little bit, you can reduce this flexion uh, and the work that the mold does to any degree you want just by um, using uh, um, harder materials. So uh, um, if you have like a a thin wooden mold, then it will deform uh, a lot and then will return to its original form. And so it will carry out a relatively large degree of uh, amount of work. Um, But then if you have um, a thicker wooden mold, it will uh, have less flexion. And so it's, it's carrying out less work. And then again, um, if you have a, a metal mold, it will, um, uh, it will, uh, hardly, uh, deform noticeably at all. Um, and, uh, and so this, this work of, uh, of, the flexion and return to the original form, um, is not essential to the process uh, in the sense that it doesn't, it doesn't add anything new to the process. Um, um, it, uh, it can be reduced as much as you want, depending on the materials available, um, and then um, that that work is, uh, as he says a little bit later, it's it dissipated in the form of heat. Um, uh, it doesn't. Um, uh, it's it's the 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 clay that takes on form is is where um, the form taking operation happens, uh, and then the deflection the of the mold is is just. Uh, Um, uh, a sort of byproduct of that. Uh, So we can go on to the next bit, uh, which will finally finish this giant paragraph. um, And then um, I think we might get to the end of this section uh, from there. Um, So I can read the next bit. So we just saw, all right, uh, the end uh, of the page on potential energy being actualized. Um, That is why the preliminary treatment of the clay prepares this actualization. It renders each molecule interdependent with the other molecules and renders the ensemble deformable so that each portion equally participates in a potential energy whose actualization is the molding. It is essential that all the portions without discontinuity or privilege have the same chances to deform in any direction whatsoever. A lump or a stone are domains of non-participation in this potentiality that is actualized by localizing its support. They are parasitic singularities. The fact that there is a mold i.e. limits of actualization, creates in the matter a state of reciprocity in the forces that lead to equilibrium. The mold does not act from the outside by imposing a form. Its action reverberates within the whole mass through the action of molecule to molecule and portion to portion. The clay at the end of the molding is the mass in which all of the forces of deformation encounter in every direction forces that are equal and in opposite directions to those of which equilibrium consists. The mold translates its existence into the matter by making it tend toward a condition of equilibrium. For this equilibrium to exist, there must be a certain quantity of potential energy that is not yet actualized in the whole system at the end of the operation. It would not be precise to say that the form plays a static role while the matter plays a dynamic role. In fact, in order for there to be a single system of forces, the matter and form must both must, sorry, both must play a dynamic role. But this dynamic equality is only true for a moment. The form does not evolve and is not modified because it does not contain any potentiality, whereas the matter evolves. The matter is the bearer of potentialities that expand and are distributed uniformly in it. The homogeneity of the matter is the homogeneity of its possible becoming. Each point has as many chances as all the others. The matter about to take form is in a state of complete internal resonance. What occurs at one point reverberates within all of the others. The becoming of each molecule reverberates within all the others at all points and in all directions. The matter's elements are neither isolated from one another nor heterogeneous relative to one another. All heterogeneity is a condition of the non-transmission of forces and therefore a condition of internal non-resonance. The plasticity of the clay is its capacity to be in a state of internal resonance as soon as it is subjected to a pressure in an enclosure. The mould as a limit is that through which the state of internal resonance is provoked, but the mould is not that through which the internal resonance is realised. The mould is not what uniformly transmits in all directions the pressures and displacements within the malleable clay. It cannot be said that the mould gives form. It is the clay that takes form according to the mould because it communicates with the worker. The positivity of this form taking is that of the clay and the the worker. It is this internal resonance, the work of this internal resonance. The mould intervenes of the condition of enclosure, limit, halted expansion and direction of mediation. The technical operation institutes internal resonance in the matter taking form by means of energetic conditions and topological conditions. The topological conditions can be called form, and the energetic conditions express the entire system. Internal resonance is a system state that requires this realization of energetic conditions, topological conditions, and material conditions. Resonance is an exchange of energies and movements in a det- determined enclosure, a communication between a microphysical matter and a macrophysical energy based on a singularity whose dimension is intermediate and topologically defined. So he uh, he introduces here this notion of uh, uh, a parasitic singularity. Um, uh, so this would be, um, so his example is a, a lump or a stone in the clay. Um, so it's something that uh, prevents the transmission of forces uh, uh, in a uniform manner across the whole mass of clay. Um, and insofar as you have something like this uh, in the clay that is supposed to take on form, then it will um, it will uh, not take on the form in an adequate manner. So you'll have a, a brick with a, a crack in it or a lump in it or something like that um, that will result from the process of individuation. And then conversely, if you if you do have um, the 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 clay processed in such a way that it doesn't have the, these um, uh irregularities uh contained in it, then you get this condition of internal resonance where um the whole uh the whole mass is um uh structured in the same way and uh um there there's this uh tending towards equilibrium so the the, the forces all tend to equalize um in the formation of the brick.
2: Could you explain this try and figure out this thing where he says all heterogeneity is a condition of the non-transmission of forces, and therefore, a condition of internal non-resonance. So, I get, I, I guess, with the example of the brick in the clay, like he says that the ability, the, the the fact of the forces, each molecule, kind of being able to behave as though homogeneous and exert force in equally in any di- in any direction, and all that stuff. That's important for it to be able to do what it does. But then. So, so is he saying that if um, I don't know a system state or if a level of forces or matter—I'm not sure what the vocabulary is here—but if if there's a state of heterogeneity, then force can't be transmitted. I don't know how that follows.
0: Um, so I think it's not so much, uh, so it's maybe he's a little bit imprecise here. Uh, it's not so much that the forces aren't transmitted as such uh, or at all, not that they aren't transmitted at all, but it's that they aren't transmitted equally or in an equal manner in all directions. So when, when you do have the clay processed uh, and filtered and so on in the, in the correct manner, then the the forces um, exerted onto the clay by the molds are are transmitted um, uh, in in all directions uh, equally. But then, if you have uh, a, a bit of uh, a, a lump or um, a bit of uh, stone mixed in with the clay, um, then the forces aren't going to be transmitted equally, um, and so there's this. Um, non-resonance in the sense that uh the 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 force is not transmitted in uh in all directions in the same manner um and and so that's what uh that's what that that there means uh so heterogeneity is a condition of non-equal transmission of forces i think is how we should understand that or of an unequal transmission of forces um and therefore a condition of internal non-resonance
2: but so how does that translate into like um for example the clay in the in just its natural state before it's prepared or taken um, because because that does make sense when you give the example of the rock but uh, it wouldn't you wouldn't you think that in its natural state it, it, I guess I just don't know that the science it, wouldn't it be more heterogeneous in that state in which there would be sort of differences depending on what part of the know the kind of what part of the clay that you're you're removing you know being mixed with other kinds of matter as well but then does wouldn't it still have those potentials or internal resonance in that state no it's uh, that's helpful Angus you're saying that the preparation of the clay it's is the removal of heterogeneity so like priming it with this right kind of powder and the right kind of processes so that it can its colloidal properties can come out and it can do this in the proper way that doesn't make sense to me i guess what I'm trying to reconcile, I think it's more a linguistic thing that I've never thought of internal resonance as being opposed to heterogeneity. You know, if anything, usually I feel like those things are spoken of in the same sentence. So that's what I'm trying to, in his system, I'm trying to understand how those things are opposed. Yeah, that's a good point, Angus. Maybe maybe it's just because we're talking about physical situation because I'm, I'm thinking a lot of this language really jives with some of the Bergsonian stuff we've been reading. But then I'm, in that light, very much is, especially when he talks about the zones of indetermination indetermination, with like the living being and stuff, that idea of internal resonance and heterogeneity is extremely important. But then you might be right that he distinguishes, I guess that I forgot that he's going to distinguish between different levels of individuation and stuff. So maybe that's just as far as physical individuation is concerned.
1: Yeah, I read some paper that argued that... Um... Deleuze and Gattari don't see physical individuation as transduction because of the um, homogeneity of the, um, you know, like the supersaturated solution, for instance, whereas the um, vital and psychical individuation for Simundan are transductive for Deleuze and Gattari. I can try to find that.
2: Yeah, I'd love that. I guess while we wait, I'm just seeing this quote at the end of the paragraph we just read, where it says, "Resonance is an exchange of energies and movements in a determined enclosure, a communication between microphysical matter and macrophysical energy." Blah blah blah. So I guess that's the question. Maybe that's something I need to investigate more: is how.
4: Yeah, I was going to say something to that effect too about how there's the um, the um, kind of union. In this system, between um, seems like there's a, like the internalized internal re- residence is energetic, and yet he's also pointing out some sort of top, topological um, nature to the to the mold or the container. So that was very interesting um, because, in a way, he's reconciling couple different systems
0: hi uh sorry my computer froze so i got uh i had to restart discord um
2: yeah non-manifest you are the uh topological condition for our form taking
0: okay well uh in that case i'll try to make sure that my computer doesn't crash uh next time um but uh, yeah, I think we can probably end here since we're at the end of the section, uh, rather than going on to just read a couple paragraphs of the next one. Okay, not hearing any objections, so um, yeah, let's end there for today, and uh, we'll pick up again on the the second section, and we'll learn all about um, modulation next time, which uh, is going to be fun.